Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, what's up, y'all? This is uh, Questlove Supreme. It's kind of awesome. I've been knocking out bucket list after bucket list of all the drummers that have influenced my life. Time out. Let me say what's up to the Team Supreme, for starters. Sugar Steve, where you at right now, bro? He's in the elevator. Wait, you're at your apartment already? Yes, sir. I live walking distance from you from ran. Work. You yes. ran home? No, I briskly walked. I, I, I think you live 10 New York City blocks away from where we work, so you're, you're a speed walker then. Anyway, um, Fontigolo. What's going on, bro? I'm good, man. I'm cool, man. Uh, friend, send him one up for Laia, man. I hope she gets better. She hurt her leg uh, today, so uh, that's right. Probably, probably won't right. make it, but uh, yeah, hope you hope you get well, work wife. We we praying for you. Yeah, we are. We're praying for you. You know, I'll I'll say that our guest today is well. I, I feel like all of our guests on Questlove Supreme are legendary, but our guest is definitely a legendary trendsetter. Uh, in both music and fashion. Yes, the red codpiece. We cannot state that enough. <laughs> I'll say that, you know, once behind the driver's seat of, uh, I think at its most, maybe a 14-piece uh, Funkatorium called Cameo. And, um, I, you know, I'm dying to know how per diem was handled back in the day. But, you know, <laughs> ha- having, having been of age to witness this band and their first incarnation as a 14-piece, I got, I got to say that these brothers definitely took entertainment like to the next level. Their, their live show had to be seen to be believed. If, if you can, uh, there's, there's a clip of them. Or there's a, a show I used to watch as a kid called Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. And, you know, the first incarnation, for those of you that remember when Cameo just wasn't uh, a quartet, or or a you know or or a trio that's that's one for the history books, but um I would I would like to note that while many of the bands that were you know from the 60s and the 70s 
they kind of found the transition to the 80s a little difficult to make. And our our guest today and his band of brothers not only found kind of a way to coexist with a new art form uh, that was really much going to eclipse black culture in general. And, of course, I'm talking about hip hop. I, I will say that our, our guest today probably pioneered what we know as New Jack Swing, basically by <laughs> by embracing a hip hop attitude, you know, uh, clearly like a year or two before Shaka's I Feel For You, three years before Teddy Riley sort of figured out the magic combination, um, neck and neck with Jimmy and Terry. Shout out to Jimmy and Terry, of course, you know, we discussed was Control, the first New Jack Swing album, like the idea of hard drums and and soul music. But I'll, I'll say for many, you know, um, of those albums in the 80s, like She's Strange, Single Life, um, and especially the the timeless and still, you know, gets much play today, like songs like, you know, Word Up and, and Candy. I, I will say that this band has, has gotten to go places that a lot of their contemporaries, like the Commodores, the Ohio Players, the OJs, the Barkays, Mandrell, name them, really wasn't able to make that transition. And we're just honored. I, I again thank God for DMs. I, I shot my shot, and um, mm-hmm. it happened. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Questlove Supreme, the one and only Larry Ow Blackman, <laughs> founder of Cameo. What yes, is up, sir. my brother? Uh, How are pretty, you? That's pretty good question. I appreciate you having me on, man. It's a pleasure. <laughs> I I appreciate you. You know, making making this happen. Where where are you residing right now? Where are you talking to me from? At the moment, I'm talking to you in a place called Atlanta, Georgia. Hey. So you still reside in the A. All right. No, no. No, I, I reside in, in, in Henderson, Nevada. Okay. Oh. Vegas. Oh, okay. But uh, for for other family reasons, okay. I, I'm, uh, I've been here off and on for, for a minute. And uh, as you know, New York is my home, no matter where I am. Okay, I feel you. But I, I'm zipping across here and there, man. You know how we do it, you know? And I happen to really enjoy that uh, Juneteenth celebration. It was on CNN, man. I, I saw you, and, uh, I, you know, you're one of the few uh, drummers that respect the pocket, because without that, it's nothing. You, you taught me well, man. <laughs> yeah, that's funny, man, that uh, you, you're from Philly, because that's when I really started. Um, I I went to Edison there. I heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I guess you know a little bit more about me than I know about myself. But <laughs> no, don't, I'm, I'm not just I'm not I'm not just a, you know, I know candy and I know you wore a red jock strap. I know Cameo, man. I've I've read interviews and I, you know, for me as a professional, this is 30 years in the making. Like the fact that we haven't crossed paths yet to me is is crazy, but it is. It really I know is. a lot about you because you have so much history, man. I might as well I, I got to immediately dive in. Can you tell me in your life what was your first musical memory? My first musical memory. Yes, in your life. I was about five years old, and um, my aunt was um, staying with us in New York. She was from Augusta, Georgia, and mother's sister. And she always talked about the Apollo, 
and she took me to my first show there. So my first musical memory was, I guess, being about two rows back uh, from the stage and, and, and observing Sam Cooke. That was right. first musical memories. Um, and, and then she tells me the story about uh, after leaving there, I broke away from her running down the street and almost ran across 7th Avenue uh, and came close to being uh, met by a Greyhound bus. Hmm. <laughs> and she didn't think it was that funny, but uh, um, she said I, I would laugh and let her catch up with me and then break away and run that much more. And that had nothing to do with music. But being that my first musical experience was there, I was like, and then after becoming old enough to make it there myself, I used to play hooky from church and catch the matinees on Sunday for years. Okay, so wait, do me a favor, because this is like a, a rabbit hole show where we nerd out on information like that. <laughs> Could you please walk me through like a typical day where you go to the Apollo? Like, how much did it cost? Like, where would you sit? The acts that played, like, can you walk us through a, a typical Apollo? What year are you talking around? Is this the 60s, 70s? Oh my God, this this had to be the 60s. Okay. Uh, a typical day was, uh, you know, uh, parents would give us these uh, envelopes. Uh, we were members of the Union Baptist Church on 145th between 7th and 8th. Okay. We would go to church. I would take my sister. She was about five years younger than me. And um, we'd go and we'd wait until offering time, which we would take the envelopes and put it in plate. And after the plate went around and everything, there was something else that happened. They would play music or do something, but I would give her the signal and then we'd meet in the back of the church if she wasn't sitting with me. And then I would take her across the street to my cousin's house leave her and take the 8th Avenue bus to 125th Street and get, go up to the Apollo. But anyway, they had matinees on Sunday. There were two shows on Sunday. And, and I would catch the earlier show. And um, my seat was, if you're on the stage, you look to the left and the first balcony right there, that was my seat. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and it didn't have my name on it. And strangely enough, I was never challenged about where I sat. Um, <laughs> and that went on for years. I've seen every late great performer Name of color. I mean, everyone from, uh, okay, Sam Cooke, Jackie Wilson, um, Flip Wilson, uh, of course, James Brown. I mean, right. come on. And, and the lines went around the corner in both directions, all the way to the rear of the theater. Um, Man became acquainted with uh, acquainted with a couple of the master of ceremonies, uh, goodness names. I can't think of some of the names right away, but I don't think, and I've seen everybody, Ray Charles, B.B. Um, King, Benny King, Joe Tex. Um, For you, who was the act that really grabbed you the most, like when you saw them? Like for you, is it just like, ah, I'm bored, let me go see what's at the Apollo? Or, you know, was the music calling to you or was it just something to do on a Sunday? 
No, I I did that. I was I was I was totally captivated by everything that happened. And I don't know if you have any memories of the Apollo, but they used to show a, a movie before the uh, live acts. It just it just grabbed me. I I mean every Sunday I that's something I did like clockwork. Um, wasn't discussed. Didn't feel as if I had to. I just had to see whoever was there. The one show I did not see was the Jewel Box Review. Didn't even know what it was until some years later. You know, I never questioned that. But, man, I, I was there and, you know, turned into friendships with uh, uh, Five Stair Steps with Kenny and Clarence and uh, family. And... Um, Man, I mean, I remember times when the Jackson Five were there, when uh, Michael was running around backstage, up and down the stairs, and and uh, Jermaine, you know, you know, if you know Jermaine, you know he was the protector, right? <laughs> um, and um, you know, just to get to know those guys on a one-on-one uh, basis was was uh, I enjoyed that a great deal. So you would you were just allowed leeway, like throughout the theater, or just the, the more the more. Uh, people noticed me. Okay, the, I was allowed to enjoy what I enjoyed doing, and that was, you know, um, it was a weird thing. I cannot even remember how certain things turned into friendships, but I did that. That happened a lot at the Apollo. How many of these shows would occur a day? Is it just one long concurrent show from like? Would a typical show just be like a two-hour experience and then they get rid of people and then you come back or? Yes, it was like that. Uh, I believe uh, at one time, I understand, there were several shows a day, okay, okay, prior to my attending. But I would remember at least two shows and they would add a show according to whatever was going on. I watched the documentary on HBO and... um, a lot of it I remembered, mm-hmm. uh, but some of the acts that were there prior to my going, I heard a lot of things. And then Amateur Night, I believe, was on Wednesday. Right. And that was a gas within itself. It was uh, Apollo, to me, was <laughs> a finishing school, if you want to call it that. But that's where I... I really cut my teeth. I remember George Clinton Parliament before it became Funkadelic Mint. I remember the first show when it became that. Right. And of course, George was wild, as as we've <laughs> always known him to be over the years. But there was a group called the Flamingos that had a song called Funky Broadway. Mm-hmm. And that was the group that as far as drums were concerned, that turned me out. That solo at the end of Funky Broadway was the solo you had to play if you were Wait, a not, drummer. Wait, not Dyke and the Blazers. Dyke and the Blazers. Oh. And there was, was an act called the Flamingos. The Flamingo, okay. Dyke and the Blazers was one thing, but the Flamingos, it was called the Battle of the Bands okay. or Groups. Right. That the Manhattans, uh, Parliaments, uh, Parliament, and a lot of other acts. Uh, can, can I ask something? The 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 incarnation of the 
parliaments that you saw. Have you has Funkadelic, the sort of the rock version of the P Funk organization, have they ever played the Apollo? Oh yes, indeed. Were they I'm well received or were they a little bit too wild for that audience? Strangely enough, they were well received. Um, That's what's up. And they were using, I believe, the uh, amplifiers were called. I forgot what they called. They, they, uh, the the ampl- amplifiers lit up. Oh, and, really? Um, okay. It was Eddie Hazel. Yes. <clears throat> oh man. Okay. He was louder than I've heard anything on that stage at the uh, at the Apollo. And strangely enough, the audience enjoyed it. I, I never understood that. And on that particular show, I was on the second balcony at the top. Right. Uh, I think I was about 14 years old at the time. And uh, it was, it was for, for me, it was apropos for the time. Right. It was well received because it was unlike anything we'd ever heard before or seen before. We were all aware of the new music coming. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Sly, uh, you know, and and his uh, members, right. Larry Graham, and you know, went from there to, I forget what it was called, Larry Graham's Graham Central Search. Yes, and um, man, that whole transition was man, it was quite enjoyable. And the Chambers Brothers, you 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 know about them. So psychedelic psychedelic black rock that played well with the Apollo audience. Yes, indeed, it did. Wow. You know, for me, well, tell me, like, did you come from a, a musical family or like how did, how did music enter your life as far as like this is your calling? No musical family members at all. It started with the Drum and Bugle Corps. There was a military organization mm-hmm. uh, called the Junior Guard. And it was the, it was um, located at the 369th Armory on 142nd Street, right down the block from where the world famous Cotton Club was located. Okay, but at that time, Cotton, Cotton Club had been torn down, and uh, they had some other uh, was it Minnesota? Yeah, Minnesota organization who had been known for the you know a fierce drum and bugle corps. I mean, they were about the best uh, in Harlem at that time. And um, 309th uh, Armory was where this organization that was modeled after the army. If you remember, Hitler had a youth organization. Mm-hmm. Mm. That Hitler Youth Army. Oh, and I, you know, didn't have a historic record about how this happened, but they had a junior called the junior guard. And I just noticed in America, um, a lot of the Gestapo Gestapo habits were used by our FBI, the head of the FBI. um, J. Edgar Hoover? J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover, yeah. So I noticed, you know, and they dressed it differently and brought it in a different way, but they used a lot of what they saw work in Germany, okay, with um, with Hitler's business. Um, and 
I, I figured that had something to do with this, uh, how this organization came together. They saw what worked and they tried different things. And the government paid for this organization. Um, and so uh, joined it at an early age, around 12. And, uh, you know, went up in rank to uh, Master Sergeant. But I, what I loved about it was the organization, the things you learned. Uh, you couldn't learn these things anyplace else. Mm -hmm. uh, typical of our armed services. Um, and then at one point, they started a drum and bugle corps. All right. Mm -hmm. And at this point, I'm approaching junior high school. And from there, um, and then going to junior high school, I immediately applied for the orchestra. And I played drums the first year, baritone bass class the second year. Third year, went back to drums. Um, and that's where my musical career started. Dagon the Blazers came out with Funky Broadway. The Flamingos did, it was something that they did at the Apollo that I'd never seen done before, but the beat that the guy used was similar to that of Funky Broadway. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, and they had a move that went with it, but it was, it, it just, it just totally took me someplace I hadn't been pr previously. As soon as I got home, I started doing that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then we started all acoustic band in school. Drums, trombone, baritone, tennis sax. Mm -hmm. And there was another uh, person who floated in and out. But um, we played for the assembly and it came off. And people wanted to hear us play. So occasionally we would play at uh, the 160 Audubon, Audubon Ballroom, where gotcha. Malcolm X. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was across the street from a hospital I had attended with a thick file, <laughs> Presbyterian <laughs> Medical Center. Right. And, uh, and so I remember those times well. But from there, it went to. Um, an electric band, um, and that band wound up being Cameo some years later, quite a few actually. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson, uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. 
In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. How did you wind up in Philadelphia? Because when did you go to Edison? Oh, man, God. I went to Edison for one year. Um, I um, I was, you know, my, my grandmother lived in Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, the family was from Georgia, Thompson, Georgia, and then Augusta, Georgia. And then they spread out from there. Um, my mother had seven sisters. She was the oldest. And um, most of them moved to Philadelphia with uh, with grandma. Okay. So, and she was an avid churchgoer. Uh, so places like um, the Met there mm-hmm. in Philly, yeah. which was just be done, I understand. And it's, it's supposed to be phenomenal inside. I haven't seen it since. But um, that was the place that we would go at least four nights a week. Um, church was mandatory. Um, you didn't get to avoid it. And uh, so that's how the whole Philly thing happened. And um, we, um, we were in an area between um, Norris and Diamond. North Philly. A, yeah, North Philly. N-O-R-F. <laughs> that's how Jill Scott says, N-O-R-F, North Philly. Okay, you were from West Philly? I'm from West Philly, yes. Yes, I have a lot of relatives there, too. Okay. I didn't even know what West Philly was. I knew where the Greyhound bus station was. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like it too much as as a kid, or was New York more 
Like, was New York too hip? Was Philly like a downgrade for you when you came? Or No, I wouldn't call it a downgrade. I, I'd say that there was a, a large gap between culture and, you know, it was just very different. You know, um, as I remember, there was a lot of uh, a lot of violence going on in Philly. Mm -hmm. And the older you got, the more you uh, understood what was going on, but never did really understand why. <laughs> so how did you because because of the gang culture, especially back then, how did you avoid that? Or is it just the unspoken thing of like if gang leaders knew that you had some sort of talent or you could get out, they just left you alone? I really don't think it mattered to them. Um, I don't know if they knew or not, but I know we lived in between two Norris Street and Diamond Street. And and you would probably know more about that than, than I know that's where we were. Yeah. Uh, and uh, They were talking about, I mean, I couldn't believe they were actually talking about drafting people into certain gangs. Um, we were the, the guys that uh, did not go for that. Mm -hmm. We we avoided that uh, like the plague. I see. And that's how we avoided it, period. You know, uh, they had, I'm sure they had their things to do, whatever that was. Mm -hmm. But as I said, you know, my, my grandmother was an avid churchgoer and um, that wasn't part of the agenda. I feel you. So here's the question I have. You know, for most of the funk legacy, most of them get their start in the Midwest. And probably one of the key components of starting in the Midwest is that families move out there. There's industry. You know, they get factory jobs, good paying factory jobs. And they live in these houses that either have rec rooms or dens or garages of which, you know, with, with that extracurricular money, you buy instruments. But how are bands able to form and living in a cosmopolitan city in which, you know, the average black family lives in an apartment or, you know, Philadelphia is kind of known for its small house structure. So I know when I was, you know, coming up, I mean, my neighbors kind of liked me, so they were willing to put up with the noise. It, it was like it was like I was I was Calvin for McDonald's, like I'll leave him here alone because he's going to be something one day. So the. But, you know, the walls were really thin in Philly. I didn't live in a place where you had space, unless you lived in Queens or something like that. But, like, how when you start a band, I, how would you, where would you guys rehearse or be allowed to make noise to even see if you have it? Everything sort of developed from school, okay? And in that area, there was um, an apartment or complex called the Bridge Apartments. Uh, it was on the other side of the Washington Bridge. And they had these rooms um, when you would enter the building to the right or left that were just rooms with space. And um, as you said, people like you, they see that you're trying to do something different. And somehow they let us use these rooms. And we would rehearse there. It was difficult. I grew up in the projects and everyone knew who was playing drums when it, you know, reverbed off the walls on that, on that block. Um, 
we didn't have a lot of different musicians, but the ones that, I mean, you knew of them because you could hear them. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I annoyed quite a few people. Right. Um, and in a couple of buildings, but for some reason, no one ever came to the apartment to say, uh, uh, could you uh, bring it down a little bit? I'm sure a lot of a lot wanted to. Right. They felt <laughs> guilty about someone who was trying to play music. Um, I would play with the, the stereo, of course. And James Brown was our pocket master. Um, and you, you just had to have that that swing. You know, I learned early on if a person could not dance to what you were playing, it didn't make sense. And then when you started recording, that was a whole different, a whole different experience. Um, okay. I would use the click track as a guide um, because not listening to the beat as much as um, it allowed me to relax inside mm -hmm. the pocket that was was happening. Uh, I was talking to D'Angelo once. And uh, he, he was uh, ex telling me about you, you know, you playing with him. And uh, and I said, man, I mean, he he he's he's happening. Um, and uh, he went into a whole thing about how what Prince was saying about this, that or the other. You know, Prince was a, a great guy, man. I, I, I uh, as aloof as he might have been, um, you know, we, we had good conversations. They were never long. I feel you. Yeah, yeah, I forgot. You you brought John Blackwell to him. Yeah, yeah. So the great did. John the late great John Blackwell. Yeah, Absolutely. A couple of people before him. Cameo was the uh farm team for, for Prince. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> One question I have for you, Larry, uh, was regarding your early days in drumming. You were playing on you had a chance to work with Black Ivory and uh Want to know what if you remember what songs you played on, and uh, if you remember anything about working with Leroy Burgess, he's another kind of hero of ours. Yeah, I like Leroy. Uh, Leo, Leroy lived in the same project that I, that I uh, lived in there, and um, Leroy was cool. Um, I worked with uh, Patrick Adams mainly. Patrick yeah. was the ah, uh, the late Patrick Adams. He just he just passed. Yeah, just passed. And I played uh, you and I have an understanding. I believe that's you and you and I. Really? Yes. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> Yo, wait, how did you know that, Fonte? Because I didn't even know that. Yeah, it was. You know, I have informants. But, uh, <laughs> but nah, man, wow, he's on you and I. Okay, that's dope. That's super dope. Yes, uh-huh. It was, uh, and Patrick was a phenomenal guy, man. He played like six or seven instruments. And uh, we, we would start off on the keyboard and the drums. That's how it started. Um, I, and I played, goodness, I must have recorded four, four different tracks, mm -hmm. two, two of which... You know, don't turn around and and that you and I. Mm. Whoa, that's crazy, man. I didn't know so you played dope. on you and I. <laughs> mm -hmm. Damn. Okay, that's a classic. Your first band, East Coast, with Gwen Guthrie. Yes. Talk about it, how did that come together, man? Well, we played at the Cheetah a great deal. Uh, she was with a group called the Matchmakers, I believe. Yeah. They were from um, East Orange. 
And uh, we would see each other a lot. Uh, so when I was about to form the first unit that turned into Cameo, I asked if she was interested in um, joining a band playing all originals. And of course, that was the dream back then. And East Coast, we played uh, in Long Island a great deal. And uh, whenever we could get <laughs> could get work, uh, we played in Quebec, a place called uh, Trois Rivières, which was uh, <laughs> about an hour from Montreal. Um, we were up there for a while. That was uh, that was the closest thing to a res residency that I can remember. Uh, but Gwen was a very talented, you know how talented she is. Uh, oh, yeah. She was phenomenal, man. I I, I loved working with Gwen. Um, and her and, and uh, our trombone player connected. Uh, and they wrote, as a matter of fact, they met um, Benny Ashburn. the um, Commodore's before, manager. Yes, she was living in Lenox Terrace at the time. <laughs> We had a res residency at Small's Paradise. Um, and oh, we Small's were... in Harlem. Yes, yes. Uh -huh. I believe I believe that Robert De Niro now owns that club and has kept it running. Oh, really? I yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He uh, he hooked it up and kind of refurbished it. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know yeah. of a place in Philadelphia that he did the same same thing, but. I believe that was more of an after-hour place. Hood spot. <laughs> <laughs> Mittens, yeah, yeah. Mittens, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, yeah. I, you know, we have weird story about Robert and I staying at uh, at uh, that that hotel in Hollywood. Yeah, where uh, where Belushi was found. Um, oh man! That was, oh, uh, the. Damn, I used to stay there. Um, yeah, yeah, across on Sunset, uh, yeah. Um, uh -huh. And uh, Rick and I were staying there. When we were there for other reasons. But that's how I met Eddie, as a matter of fact. Uh, Rick introduced me to him. And then I uh, I produced his uh, second album, I believe. Um, oh, and the, the one after uh, How Could It Be? How Could um, It Be? Yeah. The one after... Would put your mouth on me. Uh, right, yeah, the one with that song on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, oh, Chateau Marmont was the was the hotel. Marmont. That's right. Yeah. And you know, Rick had to get the room that they found John Belushi in. Um, you know what? Everyone is obsessed with that bungalow number. Everyone's obsessed with it. That's where De Niro and I met. Uh, we would always meet in the garage, um, coming to going. <laughs> Deer Hunter at the time, right? And uh, oh, I recognized him, but I wasn't. It wasn't that kind of thing. We we were talking about typical things. Um, yeah, I know he he honorary brother. Man, he's he's <laughs> he's, a, he's a he's a real guy. That's I been, already know. <laughs> <laughs> I already know. Yeah. I already know. Yeah. Um, so. Even before the, the 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 crafting of the group, like who who else was just around the scene in that period in the early seventies, mid seventies, before Cameo started? There was a person that's not no no longer with us. He's a co-writer on that. Um, you and I have an understanding by the moments, which was a, a a big song. His name was Tyrone Johnson. 
saxophone player. He was absolutely genius. Um, I've learned, I learned so much from those cats. And here I am, you know, goodness gracious, about 19 at the time. As a matter of fact, the group I was working with was being managed by Gene Red at the time, who, who was the producer for Cool in the Gang. Right. Mm-hmm. So George and I have known each other a long time, and he's always been the same guy. Um, Punky George? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, <laughs> he's a good brother. Um, it's yes. not a day that could go past or a birthday that he wouldn't send, um, you know, a happy birthday. And they were, they were playing at the Apollo. So as you can see, you know, have, being affiliated with those guys, um, those relationships last the longest. Uh, real musicians, too, it mattered to us back then, you know, about mm-hmm. everything everything we were doing. And um, Tyrone taught Ronald how to circular breathe. Um, and uh, we just played with with Cool and them. How long ago was that, son? Before the pandemic. Yeah, before the pandemic. Okay, okay. Yeah, um, at uh, the Mohegan Sun, I believe it was. Oh, Mohegan Sun, okay. Yeah, and uh, so before, before I got out of the dressing room, Ronald ran in and and uh, a couple of the guys and we we uh, reminisced about those times. It it was it was very special. Let me say that. You're speaking of brother uh, Bayan, uh, their saxophone player who passed away during the pandemic. One of one of my main regrets is not interviewing him. Man, he, you know, he had so much knowledge and just Good in his God. story and his work. Yeah, he was. Um. So can you tell me the story that? Well, not only that leads up to you forming Cameo, but how you caught the attention of uh, Cecil Holmes and, and Neil Bogart on Casablanca Chocolate City. Okay. Well, at the time, it was New York City Players, as we call, we call ourselves, and we played uh, East Coast, the chilling circuit, behind people like uh, the Ohio Players, George Benton, um, and, and, and others, you know, um, Rochester, Buffalo, Toronto, Michigan, uh, you know, anyway, there was a, a club in New York. I had passed this place millions of times, didn't know what it was. It was called Better Days. And okay. the guy that handled our administration at the time, this was one of his haunts. And uh, we wound up playing there on Mondays. We would play, you know, the upstate New York region and circle back to New York. We would get back, I think, Sunday, and we played Mondays there at that place. And there was a guy who was a songwriter that wanted me to produce this song he wrote called Find My Way. It was during the end of the disco era. Mm. So we recorded it. and. Um, do one of our songs on the other side. Neil Bogart was crazy about the song. Uh, we did a single deal with Casablanca, you know, that was after the Buddha thing um, mm. with Neil. Neil didn't even know we were black. Mm. What? And yeah, um, it was a single deal. And, and Neil promoted this song and did as much as he could for it you know, any song, uh, but he was just crazy about it. 
when I guess they found out we were black, then it became a part of Cecil Holmes' Chocolate City label. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after, uh, I mean, after he, I mean, he couldn't do any more for that song. That I mean, we put our hearts into it and, and did the work. But I asked Cecil to come listen to our original material. Um, and then we rented SIR over there on 52nd Street. And uh, Cecil came to here. And uh, we played rigor mortis, funk, funk, um, the songs we were working with at the time. So after rehearsal was over, uh, the um, presentation pretty much was over. I asked him if, um, if he thought we could do something. And he said, oh, I think so. Then, uh, then an offer was made for an album deal. Um, and so every album we recorded after that was gold. Rigor Mortis was the first single. I happened to be working on Wall Street at, at um, this haberdashery. And um, if I don't know if you guys remember, but Frankie on BLS had these slots called the world premiere, and I forget what the other ones were. But I noticed whenever it, a world premiere song debuted, it became a hit. Maybe it was because it was played 12 times a day. <laughs> but anyway, I was fitting a customer and, and heard the world premiere, and then our song came on. I have the Frankie Crocker world premiere drop. Hey, world, you had it. Uh, I collect, uh, you know, as 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 a so-called historian, I, I I often beg and bug people for like old school radio drops from back in the day. So, yeah, yeah. Well, when that came on, I knew that what Rigor Mortis was going to be a hit. I had never heard. I mean, every everybody else, Barry White. Um, oh, I can't remember all of this, all of the world premieres at all. Mm -hmm. But. Um, Man, I, I, I dare you to find one that did not become a hit, whatever for whatever reason. Rigor Mortis did forty thousand copies in two weeks, and uh, we were off. All right, y'all. You know what season it is? Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen. While I'm looking to spend all this money. What I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo. 
two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. At the time when you wrote Rigor Mortis, which, you know, a, a, a monster groove, you know, the environment at the time in 1977, you know, P-Funk had finally planted its flag, of course, Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know, they were, they were pretty much the, 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 the monuments. How aware are you of what the environment was as far as funk bands were concerned? And was it a thing where it's like, okay, we, what can we do to stand out from the rest or make our own mark? Because the one thing that I will say about you guys that maybe, maybe, and I don't count Heat Wave because they're, even though they're from two brothers in, in Ohio, I've just never seen a band like literally do everything but the kitchen sink on stage as far as the presentation, the dancing, <laughs> the it's it's beyond just performing your song. Like what 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 was it? What was in the drive that drove you guys to eat and to dance that hard? and not be out of breath like can you just walk us through the, the the rehearsal aspects of what you guys were trying to go for when you're doing this quest you know this that's how bad we wanted it we wanted to do what we felt would work um i think earth Wind, and fire played played a a large had a large influence on us at the time and and shortly thereafter, Maurice was like a mentor. Um, he would play, um, or they would play, at the Omni Omni in Atlanta, and he'd call and ask, and you know, let me know where he was. And just recently, Larry Dunn was telling me, man, I remember seeing you leaving Maurice's room at three a.m. in the morning. <laughs> I, Maurice was was very very uh, generous in sharing. Uh, um, things that I could not have known at that time, and and the political goings on in an act that large, and regardless if you saw five, four, or six people, you know there were always ten to twelve on stage, and 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 that's why I cut down on the uh, the photos on how many people took photos because I found in marketing that it's easier for for a fan to remember, you know, four or five people. Uh, but if you turn the album, you'll see everyone that had something to do with, you know, what we were doing. It was a collaborative affair. 
Um, mm-hmm. It was a, a democratic dictatorship. <laughs> <laughs> okay. With the experience that I had at the time, it was just coincidental that uh, I couldn't think of anyone else that possessed as much. Uh, and, and everyone was open to, uh, I, I had an open door policy. You know, if you had something to share, something to give, something to, you know, uh, suggest, I was open because I felt that, you know, uh, for a group, especially like Cameo, uh, it took everyone's sincere involvement. And, um, you know, it, we didn't have room for um, games. We had to be radio friendly, no matter what we did. They would tell us that, well, they're playing ballots now. You know, you, you guys need to come with a ballot. We come with it up tempo because we thought that worked at New York radio. And it did. You know, the choices we made would, was great. I got one question, though. Yes. Because this is typical of what you'll see when when bands from the 70s sort of transition to the 80s. You see that they will scale down. My 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 guess is for financial reasons, but how, as band leader, how are you able, like, why would you have 14 people <laughs> inside your organization? Like, and what is, what is pay like? What is, what is per diem like? What's per diem a thing? Uh, how would you guys get to gigs? Like, are you driving yourselves? Was there a tour bus back in 77, 78? Uh, did you have roadies back then? You said you like, had one question. Well, <laughs> it's like fucking 20 questions. <laughs> uh, no, man. You might have seen 14, but trust me, 14 was not, um, you know, the decisions were made by the gentleman you're speaking to right now. Um, I, I, I had a responsibility. And if it didn't work, if someone else had a better uh, uh, way of approaching it, uh, I was open to that. Uh, it wasn't, you know, as long as it was working, it was working. Um, but isn't it also like managing personalities and Jedi mind tricks? Who's late to the bus? Who has an attitude? Who's talking to this girl? Who's- we didn't have that. That We were serious. Uh, we were deadly serious. It wasn't, you know, we didn't have that problem. Um, I think everyone appreciated the fact that we had built something that was hard to keep together. And we tried to avoid that nonsense as much as we could. Yeah. And then when we talk about the seventies, our thing happened closer to the end of the seventies. We did have a bus. We bought a used Greyhound bus at first. Um, uh, And then we bought uh, a bus that Muhammad Ali sold to us or or his representatives. And it worked uh, for several years. It was in Jet Magazine. How about that? And in Life Magazine, too, center page. We took a photo for uh, publicity reasons. But, you know, I enjoyed working with, you know, talented cats. And um, it was fun as well because I couldn't think of anything else that I would want to do. I, I did attend Juilliard for, uh, for almost two years. Oh, wow. It started happening, and I just didn't see 
any reason whatsoever that I should stay at that school when um, hearing things like, you know, no one contributed anything to contemporary music worthwhile since the Beatles. I said, okay, uh, I got you. Mm -hmm. Well, let me, let me get ready for us to put our gigs together. You know what I mean? Um, So when working on like the cardiac arrest record, which, you know, is the, 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 the first album you produced it. Were you nervous as a producer? Did you, or was it just like a, a, a learning curve? No, I, I produced before uh, Cameo was a group. Uh, okay. I, I worked a great deal in producing and uh, taught, self-taught engineer. Oh, man. Okay. Um, you know, I, I had relationships. I, I played with the group um, Top Shelf. As a matter of fact, that's how I met Patrick. Okay. The group Top Shelf. I believe they had a, a regional head called Give It Up. I don't know if you guys remember that or not. And but I had a, you know, I had um uh I knew people like um Brenda and the tabulations, right on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. Right, 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 right. right. Cool people. And would run into them in Hollywood and and other places. Um Okay. You know, I was truly aside from a student of music, and um and you know, I've had some some moments, man, that were just unforgettable. Um, and what you always wanted was to be a part of black culture. You wanted to be remembered as being a part of that. And I think we achieved that. Um, and it it takes a while before you realize what you have done. Um, right. And you know that brings about you know, other challenges and other things to to do. Um, But you find that you understand uh, your music in a different way. Um, And and, um, it wasn't about going in a circle, okay? It Mm -hmm. was about, you know, achieving goals. And and, and you're serious about it. And when I discovered the uh, Mitsubishi X850, my whole world changed then, um, <laughs> as far as production is concerned. Okay, that was a hell of a machine. I can tell you that that thing made silence sound good. Um, so you were a tech head. Well, uh, somewhat. I won't say a total tech head, but what I did know and understand, um, you know, and then I was happy to be a part of old school ending. And then the new technology emerging, uh, I really enjoyed that because mm-hmm. the things that um, that I know how to do with music. And and believe it or not, it doesn't even matter anymore today. Uh, it doesn't seem to matter as much. But I always wanted music to sound good. And if you listen to... Um, it matters. <laughs> really? Really, it does matter? Okay. Uh, here's the thing. I know... I I know a lot of us have our thoughts on like uh, this person seems to just be phoning in from home or the thing. The thing is, though, that there are artists out there that are doing it. Um, I just think now that because the gate is wide left, you know, wide open, um, 
it's 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 almost like way too much. It's saturated, and but I'm I'm a person that likes to search for. You know, there there are some diamonds in the roughs out there that kind of give me hope that there's still a good future in music. It's just oftentimes, and it's like that in history. It's like sometimes the best of the crop don't necessarily get the mass exposure that um, someone that who is not as talented gets, you know? Yes, yes, that's yes. That's always been the history of music. You know, like a group like the Meters... Uh, oh, you know, unfortunately, didn't get the push that they should have gotten. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. it's and that I, was a funky act, man. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of D'Angelo, um, I've never met a cat. Now, I mean, again, cameos all things to all people, and you guys have had your your different phases and your metamorphosis. But I, for some reason, he told me like when he was a kid, like. The cameo ballad meant more to him <laughs> than even Earth, Wind, and Fire. Like people would like with with established like, hits, or whatever. For him, like why have I lost uh, you? Why have I lost you? Or mm. even Sparkle. Matter of fact, he produced Sparkle for um, I forget the name of that group. Uh, it's like four brothers from. It's like right after Brown Circuit came out, D'Angelo produced a cover of Sparkle. Oh wow! For Oh, a group called Twice. Oh no! Oh no. wow! It came out in like '95, and and uh, Angie Stone and Deanne, like the first time I heard Sparkle, because the thing was like, mm-hmm. e- even on Brown Sugar, like those patches that he had, mm-hmm. like you instantly knew it was him. But for him, like your ballads meant everything. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about uh two of us, because that's been yes. sampled, you know what I mean, by I mean Ari sampled it, uh Tupac, Tupac. you know, but yeah, but yeah, I love that song, man. Yes, two of us was a nice song, wasn't it? I knew that you had to have if you didn't have a banging ballad along with the up tempo banger, then mm-hmm. you didn't have a record. We wanted to be a part of our culture. In order to achieve that, we had to achieve those those goals. You had to, and I had to have a first tenor, a a soothing baritone, okay. And then we, you know, um, I consider myself a song stylist. Um, you know, unlike Luther Vandross, who we know when he was born, he came out singing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, those that are fortunate enough, others who had to play the top 10 to work being a drummer or being a band trying to have consistency, it was important for you to learn those things. And as a result, we have our, and we have other things that we learn mm-hmm. that you make your style. Okay. Right. But I appreciate every Ohio. I mean, I was with Sugarfoot not long before he left us. And oh man, uh, I I mean, what could that guy do that I wouldn't like? I don't know. You listen to some of those records, man. And come on, you know that that shit is real. Yes. I mean, can I tell you? Can I say anything else? <laughs> um, the great Leroy Browner, Sugarfoot. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Man, 
you know, you know something. Um, now that you mention it, what I truly admire about your approach to music, uh, in a way that I actually think, and I don't know if this is blasphemous to say because you know, for a lot of people, they're the Mount Rushmore, but um, what I always loved about your version of songs is how you handled what I dub the Greek chorus <laughs> in terms of like, take a song like attack me with your love or back and forth where you all sing. So I, I forgot where I heard it. I don't know if George told me, but he's like, if you do it as a Greek chorus where all the voices are singing in the same unison, then that's a more inclusive thing for the audience that want to learn mm-hmm. the lyrics and sing along with you, like a shower singer or a bathroom singer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always wanted to know, was that by design? I call it a choral lead. Okay. That type of vocal approach. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it feels good. Uh, I don't know if, if George's theory is correct. I wouldn't challenge it. I, I think there's more truth to that than not. Mm-hmm. But when when I approach producing and production, I try to make it what someone would like. I try to put myself in an audience's position and listening to this. And a choral lead are really they're really it's, a, it's an effective technique because then you can have individuals. Uh, accent that uh, approach and and you have a chance to do things with that with that material that you wouldn't any other way I try to imagine it as a lead and it doesn't have the same umph okay and and I would take that and and play with that with songs uh, there would be no guarantee that the way you hear, a song originally would turn out to be as as you might have imagined it to mm-hmm. be. And and I think having that control, which is why we have the variety we have in Cameo, um, I, it couldn't be a one-dimensional issue. It could not be. There's too much to do, too much you can do. Um, so when we talk about um, songs and, okay, what's your approach to this song? How do you think this should be, you know, what about this chorus? How do you want that to happen? Okay. And who's going to make the transition? Who's going to set up the bridge? Okay. What are we going to do there? Man, it's, it's, to me, I love my work. I could do that in a couple of, a couple of lifetimes, you know? Right. Uh, it's a lot to do. If, if you truly enjoy music, and I enjoy all types of music. And you can relate to this. I'm going to mention, what was the name of that song? Uh, Grover Washington, that album. Come on. Uh, Mr. Magic? Mr. Magic. Mr. Magic, yeah. Come on, George Benson. Yes. Yeah. I, but, uh, man, I used to walk around with that, playing that <laughs> that <laughs> Mr. Magic and, uh, and, and, <laughs> and uh, George Benson's. Um, material in New York. Um, I used to live uh, 
when when I moved from my parents' home, I, I lived across the street from, I guess, a city center on 55th Street between 6th and 7th. Mm-hmm. And um, man, you'd be surprised who you run into just walking down the street. Uh, Fred Astaire, um, um, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, Gene Kelly, when New York, New York debuted at that theater right around the corner for me. Scorsese's New York, New York. Yeah. Um, and where the studio was, Quadrasonic, and became uh, known for a lot of things you wouldn't want a studio <laughs> Oh, we know. I know about Quad Studios, trust me. But, uh, and, <laughs> Two and Fox Central. Yeah, straight up. I almost signed um, my man, Teddy Riley. Yeah, we met there. What? At Quadrasonic, yeah. But Teddy said, Larry... If I sign with you, man, Gene would try to kill me. <laughs> wow. Call Gene Griffin. Wow. That's a, that's a true story. Ask him. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, What I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, yo, I got to know, what was it, for me, like, as a fan of your, your your entire canon, for me, starting with Secret Omen, something different happened. And, you know, a song like I Just Want to Be, and I know, like, every Cameo fan has their Cameo song that they stick to, where they say, Okay, like Rigor Mortis is the funkiest, or She Strange is the funkiest, or whatever. Can't, but for me, I just want to be was so 
damn futuristic. Because mm-hmm. the thing is, I know that record came out in 79, but in my mind, it sounded like for me, that was Prince's blueprint. Mm-hmm. And this is way before we're talking about New Wave or the Minneapolis sound or whatever, but just like the stacking of hand claps, the absolute gut bucket funk of it all. How how did that song, even, even the fact that you guys, you know, have miniature courses inside of, even the, even the structure of that song is so weird. Like, it, um, I Just Want to Be was our first gold single. And, and I probably brought them all. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, it was real strange. And it was different. And that, it was meant to be. It was meant to go against the grain of what everyone thought a hit record was. And it was about the melodic structure mm-hmm. being accented uh, based on a melody that, that was in that, you know, bass range, okay? Uh, bass and lower baritone range. And you made the music exactly as the melody was going. And the other things we did with that developed on its own while being created. And while being recorded, I'd I say, having had the good fortune to work with engineers that were frustrated about how they were recording the same old shit, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. we just had to do it differently. Engineers like Dave O, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Not uh, familiar. York, man. Uh, and I had no idea Dave played bass. Man, he was... We were uh, two control freaks that learned how to work. <laughs> learned how to work with each other, you know, and we did, and and it turned out to be dynamite. I mean, from single life, uh, word up, and and the, and the mixes thereof, it was it, it was just phenomenal, man. Every envelope to be pushed, it was, and I'm certainly a guy that was not afraid to take that fader where it was going to go. I said, you know. I don't judge music by what that needle is telling me and what that graph is telling me. Mm-hmm. When I go, nah, 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 then I know I've, I've, done, I've raised it too high. You know, that's mm-hmm. digital feedback there. That I understand. But, you know, I used to get into arguments with engineers about, you know, you're at plus five. I, I could, I, I don't. Plus five, plus five doesn't matter to me. I just want that thing. I want to, I know it can sound. I want to see where I have to back off. You right. know, there's no way to know unless you go there. You uh, the line. I, I got to ask you, and for for a lot of fans of, of, of hip hop, um, you'll be interested to know. I, I got to ask you about brother Aaron Mills. Um, Aaron Mills to hip-hop fans, I I guess starting with Stankonia album, basically, like, Aaron Mills' bass became the sound of, like, a lot of Outkast's funkiest songs, starting with, like, his bass work on Miss Jackson uh, and beyond, like, uh, he's all over speaker box and whatnot, but he's the bass of I Just Want to Be. Finding Aaron was... um... You know, we we were booked out on a date. NCCU was booked on that date. Um, North Carolina Century, yeah. say NCCU? Yes. 
He's from North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I went to Central. That's my that's my alma mater. Right. And Professor Bird was uh, working yes, with indeed. some of the cats. Actually, both groups. Um, um, the Blackbirds. Yes, Blackbirds and NCCU. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we needed a bass player who could do vocals as well and could move. So when I saw Aaron, I knew that that was the, the that I knew we had to try him out. And so we uh, contacted them and and offered them to come up to New York to uh, to try out. We we used to use the Daily Planet there on uh, Thirty Whatever Street that was on, right? And um, and we had some people that uh, just didn't want it, man. They were they 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 wanted to be in an act where it was totally different, and we could make it happen. And mm-hmm. our approach vocally, our approach about anything was about being tired of the same old stuff. You know what I mean? And we, mm-hmm. want, yeah. we wanted to do something different. That's what we did. And, and we've used some musicians from uh, London. Uh, it didn't matter where they were from, man. If they had that thing, and especially when it came to recording, and ideas that were different. It was exciting. It was beyond beyond that. And also, uh, too, um, wanted to mention uh, Bernard Wright, who you know oh also God. recently passed. Like, what was it like working with him? Man, we were talking about that not hours ago. Um, I, I still um, that 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 was hard for me uh, to and to you know, and I didn't know what caused his, his demise at, and someone told me he was hit by a car. Oh, wow. But Bernard is one of those geniuses. In his later teenage years, everybody he listened to was dead. I mean, and they're fucking for Jamaica. Let's, come on, we know what that is. Yeah. Yes. I mean. The masterpiece. I was just contacted recently about some um, tribute that they're doing to, to Bernard, and I'm trying to think about that thing. Um, um, Bernard was, you know, there are guys you, you, you've had relationships with that remind you of people like Jimi Hendrix and, and, and others. Um, mm-hmm. They just have, they're on that different, on that different trajectory that. Like you can't think of two other people, mm-hmm. same with the same flavor. Bernard is one of those guys, and I've worked with I don't know how many keyboard players. Um, he his spirit was something very different. Had you ever worked with him, Quest? I met Nard uh, a few times at like you know occasional jam sessions or whatnot, but I never got to work with him. Oh, okay. um, and really, really didn't get to nerd out on him like I, I wanted to, you know, and I'm such a fan of like just that era of Marcus Miller and, the, you know, the Jamaica boys and all that stuff. And yes, I'm such yes. a fan of such a fan of that era. But we're probably going to have Marcus Miller on soon, so I'll get to learn more about him. But no, definitely that, he, you know, especially you, you could tell to me, you could tell like the true artistry of someone. I'm, I'm a hits guy. I mean, I'm, I don't. I think I'm more of a filler guy than I'm a hits guy. Like, I feel like the true definition of an artist is based on the album cuts and how they treat that. 
And for him especially, like, he's just, his ideas were, like, way, way, way beyond, way beyond his time period. I I want to skip, I want to skip ahead to the uh, Alligator Woman album. You know, Alligator Woman is probably one of the most curious songs of your catalog. Um, and at the time, like, I think blacks were trying to figure out, like, what their position was in just a non-dance music structure. For that album, like, could you just discuss what the, the, the creative angle was, especially with that very unusual song in your catalog? Freedom, that was the precipitated factor. After a while, you start to hear, well, you've heard it all your life, but you didn't really pay attention to it until it pertained to you or involved you. And Mm -hmm. we were at at a place where, you know, yeah, we recorded a lot of things and and they were very good to us. Uh, But... Um, alligator woman you just wanted the freedom to be able to do and surprisingly enough it surprised the heck out of me it did quite well it didn't i mean it i i was really surprised about that i think at the time maybe number four or five or or maybe even higher on the r&b charts at the time Mm -hmm. but songs like secrets of time and flirt especially flirt yes yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was that was uh, that was some funky stuff. Um, Indeed, we didn't try to be different as much as we challenged our, ourselves, more or less. You know, I would also like to know. I know that in '82, maybe it was '81, you made the transition from singing vocals behind the drum set and getting in front of the microphone for you, how foreign was that to you? Or, you know, were you a reluctant leader? It was very foreign. Um, <laughs> and how, how did you find a drummer that you trusted live? And we still, we're still looking for that drummer. We've had, <laughs> we've had them, at, we've had them at times. Um, it was a real strange thing. Uh, it, you know, we didn't, with the changes that went on, we didn't have that person up front that had the relationship with the audience that we wanted for it to have. And and as much as I didn't want to, uh, it was discussed a couple of times. And then and then hear things like, you know, you, you gotta you you gotta come out front because you're singing these songs also mm-hmm. that are, that we're we're performing. And you're doing this that, and the third. Um, and man, have we had drummers. God knows we have tried. We had everybody but you, guy. <laughs> hey, you never know, man. I I I would put that on my bucket list. I uh, tell you, man, uh, you're one of the only drummers I know with uh that has a steady pocket that's for real. There are a couple of other people we've heard, but it's it's not as easy as you might think it should be. I don't know. I, 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 I haven't figured that one out yet. I can't even put it into words. Um, but I know it's hard working. I am very close. <laughs> right. I'm very, right. 
uh, sitting back down on those drums. I'll tell you that much. Man. Uh, I was curious to know about your work with, with Miles Davis. Um, what was it like working with him kind of Man. on yeah. that album? And specifically, why was he just randomly right. <laughs> in these videos without any context whatsoever? <laughs> I met Miles when I was uh, eight years old first, at first. Miles um, mm -hmm. used to train with boxers to stay in shape. And, uh, and my dad was in the uh, boxing game. And uh, so turns out uh, Miles had an attorney that um, when he passed the bar, he represented me or us uh, in a situation with a manager we had. Um, and some years later, uh, lo and behold, Peter's representing Miles, uh, Yoko Ono, uh, several different people. So uh, in knowing that, I um, had a song that um, I had somebody play the, you know, the demo of that I wanted Miles to hear. And, um, and he, he called back that afternoon, about two hours later. And uh, he said, hey, I like this, let's do this. And uh, he was writing his autobiography at the time with the gentleman. With Quincy Troop. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, um, man, we had a good time with Miles. You know, everything he had to say meant something. And, uh, man, do I miss that guy. Miles, I enjoy Miles a lot. Very useful energy, which I, I guess amounts for um, the um, musicians he had playing with him. Uh, his right. nephew played for us for a while, too. Um, but um, being in the videos, we just invited him down. And, and uh, you know, Miles was always colorful. He was a heck of a guy. And, and he seemed to enjoy the uh, female company of the ladies. <laughs> yeah, just without any context, you would look and then it would be like Miles Davis for like two seconds. Yeah. And without the internet and without like a VCR to rewind, it was like, wait, that... No, nah, that wasn't Miles Davis. What would he be doing there? Like, when they first came out, I never knew that was, I was like, that's a guy that looks like Miles Davis or, you know, maybe Charlie Singleton had a cousin or something that was sold or something like that. Like, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Oh, I know what I want to know. At any point, did any of you guys sort of get make the correlation that the young lady that sang Nasty Girl was actually on the front cover of Alligator Woman? Oh, yeah, we, of course we knew that, yeah. So you knew uh, instantly that that was, that was Vanity on the cover of, oh, wow, okay. Indeed. Because I know she was on before Vanity 6 got established, but. Right, but she was, she was just perfect for, for what I say we, uh, the photographer and, and uh, Peanut Gallery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, say no right. more. I got you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I get it. But it worked, and I think Prince must have called her about four or five times while we were uh, working, uh, shooting that day. <laughs> That's right. They were dating by then. Okay, I see. This was on the phone uh, until it became, and someone said something about. Uh, I think it was the photographer at the time, and I forget his name, but he was uh, he was colorful too. And I thought the idea was great, and it worked.
All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Can you talk about establishing your own label? Because I think, yeah, slightly before She's Strange, maybe it was Alligator Woman or Style, you started Atlanta Artist Label. It was a logo label more than a separate label within itself. It didn't have its own distribution structure. Uh, That was stuff I didn't want to get into at that particular time. And it did make a difference to me at that moment. But uh, we did well for it. It gave us uh, positive identity uh, in Atlanta. Um, And uh, we were fortunate enough to have some uh, people uh, working with us that um, helped a great deal. And uh, we were able to, you know, uh, get some different things done. It, it was all real quite positive. Um, okay. We don't want to start talking about record labels and, and the games thereof. Um, that's that's a whole nother. Maybe if you start another series. I feel uh, you, man. Let's talk <laughs> about it. <laughs> Kitchen times. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel you. <laughs> this is also the period where, and this is this is sort of across the board where, you know, the word crossover kind of becomes part of the, the black music vernacular as far as, well, I know that was a four-letter word, but, you know, not only that, but just transitioning. Um, you're seeing a lot of lead singers leave their groups in 82. You're seeing a lot of groups that were once... 14, 13, 12 members whittled down 
to trios and whatnot. How hard was it for you to come to the decision that, yo, man, we just got to, we got to pare it down a little bit? I don't think, I don't think anybody in our act saw it that way. Uh, Yet, I have to be totally honest, I never asked. I know that Jean-Paul Gaultier had a summer line that was, had just been delivered to Bloomingdale's and Mm -hmm. our wardrobe guy uh, made us aware of it. And he checked the sizes and found that it would work for that concept. And, and as I said earlier, for identity purposes, I think it was easier for our fans to focus on few people instead of a lot of people. And I think that worked for us. I turn around and every other band is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what made you keep uh, Tommy and, and, and Nathan and Charlie like kind of as the core members? I don't think Charlie was... Uh, there on that particular uh on the on the word up cover but well not was, word up but he was at least was, for yeah when we paired when we paired it down starting with strange alligator woman and right. uh and style and those things yeah we we tried to keep it a little closer uh to where we you know we just wanted the identity uh to work um and at that time you think you're making a good decision about what works for the act. And it did at the time. Yeah, it worked. This is a strange business. You know, um, when something is working, it's working. And and I think people appreciate that until it gets into um, (laughs) selfish reasons. I get you. You know, and that, that just happens. It's something that happens. You know, as all things, you know, there were challenges before that we had to uh, get over when it was East, East Coast and, and other uh, configura- configurations. Um, so I, you know, what happened, happened. You, you, you just had to work with it. And, you know, it's easy as it was for me to, to be so busy knowing what you have to do next that I didn't worry so much about what was going on at the time. Uh, just being prepared for something else was, you know, maybe uh, maybe that was an escape mechanism for me. I don't know. I, I, I only say that because I think about that now, but at the time I, I wasn't concerned about that. Okay. We just wanted to be good at what we did, offer something fresh, the um, high definition, advent of high definition was the greatest thing that could have ever happened, not only with us, but every everyone else, because it was said that um, technique would be in everyone's home. And it was, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was, which was, yeah. which was fun. But when we uh, did the candy video, uh, that was, that was Phenomenal, man. That 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 piece of work there. That that's historic. Um, Can I ask you about that video? Go ahead. Okay, so for our listeners out there, I've mentioned it a few times, but like, you know, for fans of black music, you really didn't have much to go on 
when finding out the information of your favorite ex. Like you either stuck in the sort of tweendom of Right On Magazine or the polar opposite of it, which was like either Ebony or Jet. Jet. So yeah. for a lot of like music heads like myself, there was a, a sort of a radio show called Lee Bailey's Radioscope. Radioscope. <laughs> yes, indeed. You already know where I'm going with this. I got it. So here's the thing. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> laughing at this, and I know you know where I'm going with this. Now, mind you, I was 15 at the time. <sighs> now, Radioscope on weekdays was only like a three-minute kind of like a quickie news update on Siri, you know, at least a serious journalism, if you want to call it that, of your favorite groups. But I'd never heard a more controversial hot take. Like, Radioscope was almost like black Twitter before black Twitter. <laughs> 30, 30 years. Like. And, you know, for me, as a 14, 15 year old, watching, you know, LeVar Burton and, and, like the word up video and the candy video and all that stuff. And even like attack me with your love with, with Debbie and, and uh, what's his name from uh, I think right. they were in general hospital, whatever. Were you, how upset were you when fans were complaining about, you know, sort of accusing you guys of not focusing, like you, you would have a, 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 a wide array of women in your videos. It was black women. It was white women. It was brown women, Asian women. Like, were you aware of how like disgust, uh, disgust your videos were at the time? Like, there was just a thing where it was like only black women are allowed to be in cameo videos, and why there's all these, why the all these white women and and Asian women? Like, yes, we we now it's like nothing, but it was so pioneering back then and controversial. Were you even aware of Lee Bailey's radioscope and how like fans were sort of just like hot behind the collar over this? More than I, I more than I wanted to be. Uh, but that's me, why you laugh when I said Lee Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't get any complaints from the fans. We got. I wasn't complaining. No. No. Listen, there might have been others that had things to say, but. Lee Bailey, I like Lee Bailey. He was a good good buddy. He found something that gave him clicks. The, yeah, the attention he and he went on with that. And uh it was okay up to a point. But as I explained it, you know, I was above board, fully transparent about the process. These were the same six women. You know, uh, the the process of high definition at the time right. was like layering each time. So whereas you thought that was, you know, different people, it was the same people dressed differently. Right. Together. <laughs> so it made it seem as if it, we had yeah, more. It looked like there was 42 billion women. It's almost like pre-CGI days of you guys yeah. in Times Square. Exactly. And, <laughs> and that was the process. But... You know, there were three, um, and 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 when I say three, I'm saying three as it appeared to be. Uh, I, I would say Caucasian, for for lack of a better description. But they were not all like all Anglo-Saxon Caucasian. You know, no, it was it was a vast array of women. But that was definitely the first time that we just saw 
at least in black videos, variety breaking out of the mold. I mean, you guys yeah. broke. Speaking of breaking out the mold, oh god, I'm about to forget. Can you please give me the genesis of what we <laughs> affectionately refer to as the cameo haircut? The cameo haircut and the red, the red cut. Uh, uh, and and the, the John the, Paul was was Gautier. Was that John Paul Gautier that, that, that designed that? Do you still yeah. have that cup? Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> How alive. do you wash that cup? Still alive, bro. But imagine what it was for me the day of the shooting word up. And and uh, our wardrobe guy had this box he just put up on the counter. I was in line with everyone else to get whatever I was supposed to wear. And I took it in the dress room and said, man, look at what Toys wants me to wear, man. And they, was, they were like, oh, man, that's great, Black Room. Balls out. Let's go for it. <laughs> it wasn't day it wasn't the day for me to say i'm not wearing that thing yeah you know what i mean it wasn't the day we were shooting it was our first day of shooting we had we had work to do but there was a time when all of our outfits had cups on them right. uh, call them mm-hmm. cod pieces is what we call them and uh bernard johnson god bless him you know he was the wardrobe guy in New York. I mean, at the time, you know, you always dreamed and said, man, when we make it, we're definitely going to go to Bernard. And that's what happened. Occasionally, I'll wear it if I feel like it. If I don't, I won't. And 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 it's okay. You know, the haircut, um, I had a friend girl uh, named um, Tracy Johns. Mm-hmm. She did. She's got to have it. With Spike Lee, the very first hit. Yo, oh yeah, Tracy Camilla Johns. Yeah, yes. yes, that's right. That was a very close friend of mine, and she told me about this. Uh, these barbers that immigrated here from Italy on uh, south of Houston, and I told her to take me down. Yeah, and she did, and and you know I created this this thing that um, Genesis, I guess, would have been. Grace Jones, uh, and a couple of other things I saw, I made it work. And uh, next thing I know, people from Africa is calling and telling me that they have the haircut and others. And I've heard people actually lie about it. You know, some some people that you've always considered close, but I figured if it was that important to, <laughs> to, to, uh, to say that, be it far for me to dispute that, I, I wouldn't want attention that way. Um, you know what I mean, guys. Right. Okay. <clears throat> this is weird because I, I, I'm actually the guy who invented that haircut. Uh, <laughs> so say what you want, but I'm claiming it. That's funny. <laughs> How long was it before, like, you got to rock it with confidence? But, I mean, that was definitely a statement haircut. That it, That was an instant street hit. But, I mean, at the time, did you feel like, wait a minute, what's... You know, this is the anti-Afro. Did you did you have any idea that you were you know, actually establishing, like, the Black Barber hood shop? No. You, know what was, you know what it was, Q? It was, I had, I was tired of dreads, and I thought it would have been less labor intensive. And actually, it was more. Yeah, I was like, it's more, yes. It, you know, you, you know you're, you're twisting and twisting every time, you know, you're, you're twisting without even realizing that's what you're doing. And and um, so I wanted to create a haircut that was less labor intensive. And I haven't found it yet. 
regardless of what style it is, it's going to require attention. And, um, and that's just the way it is. You're not going to escape the uh, black hair curse. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What I want to ask you is, for a lot of your contemporaries, embracing hip-hop, was a hard transition to do and it would have been very easy for you to judge it or look down on it or be condescending but from the gate not only did you embrace hip-hop but you did it in a way that didn't seem corny or condescending or like trying to jump on a bandwagon like you know you rhyming on she's strange is and he rhyming on Word Up. I mean, yeah, was, I mean, Word Up know, is uh, is yeah. a New Jack Swing song. So can you just talk about like your feelings of hip hop and how you know you embraced it without like because mo- it's it's very unusual for people to just be open to something and 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 not run away from it like a lot of your contemporaries were. Well, you know, I, I don't know what it was for them, but. I don't think we consciously made it an issue um, when it came to music. Uh, what I enjoyed about the movement called hip hop was uh, the simplicity of the drum beat and the simplicity of what was going on with the bass for the most part. And I felt that was 
that was a signature that could not be denied or uh, could not get old because that beat was what made it what it was. And whatever happened within that structure was always interesting. Um, you know, funk is what it is. You can have a funky ballad as much as you can have a funky up-tempo thing, um, mm -hmm. but there's no mistake. You're gonna bob your head. If this happening, you're gonna be in it. And once you're in it, you're in it. You know what it is from that point forward. So it didn't make you feel weird when, like a guy like Lou Salas says, you know, Bobby Brown's leaving New Edition, you know, key produces record. Because like, you know, the, the songs you were doing on that record, although not, it's definitely pre-New Jack Swing. Like one of them joints, he does a, a beatbox breakdown and a rap break, which again was very unusual for 1986. Right. It was, it was ahead of its time, so. Right. Like even working with Bobby Brown, what was that experience like? It was cool. You know, Bobby and I, were, we talked about that uh, not long ago. You know, um, Bobby was going through a lot of changes. And that's how, when I introduced um, Teddy to uh, MCA over there, where Gerald Busby was. Oh, okay. um, mm -hmm. You know, and Gerald Busby and Lil Silas, I believe. Lil Silas Jr., mm -hmm. yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I felt that uh, Teddy had some things that would work well for, for, uh, for Bobby. And the rest is history. So you made that connection. Wow. And then that studio, I put that studio on the map. When I first walked up there, they had one room on the eighth floor and a Harrison 16-track board. The one in Atlanta? No, the one in New York. Oh, Quad. Uh, Quadrasonic, yeah. Uh, Lou Gonzalez, oh, who owned the place, um, they heard that um, Larry was going to leave this place alone if you didn't get an SSL board in that room. Mm -hmm. And and next thing I next thing I know, two weeks later, there's an SSL board in there, and um, uh, Lou Lou wanted to keep us there. It was it was crazy. Uh, I, yeah, Bobby Brown Project, uh, Ryan Carey, yeah, all that stuff. Wow. Yeah, we, we we it was a home. And the next thing I know, there's another. They added another four floors uh, of other studios. And that's when uh, Biggie was up there and, and you know, the yep. thing that happened at that time, we don't have to go through everything, but. Uh, uh, no, we've, we've talked about this story a lot. Yes, okay. we know. We know. Um, York, that was the most famous corner. <laughs> uh, I know. Even when I go there now, because there's, there's a drum dealer on like the fifth floor where I get a lot of my vintage drums from. Oh, really? Yeah, there's there's a cat up there that has like a drum shop up there, so I still go there occasionally. There is one question I do want to know, you know, to to have such a crowded space, or at least in the time that you were there. I mean, now you know my band is kind of like one of the one of the last black bands with a major record deal still, mm -hmm. but just in general, what bands did you respect? Like when they were on stage, you're like, oh man, they're kicking ass, or like, Ugh. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, okay. Mm. Function, I love even today. Mm -hmm. um, 
or who didn't you like? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna ask no full force questions either. Well, but go I'll ahead. I'll tell you, my, my pet peeve is you know some of these guys, you know, they would run out and under shaky circumstances go someplace and get the, the uh, own the name of the group they've been working with for a long time, and all of a sudden they own this name, and because they own this name now. I, I tell them that in a dime won't buy you a cup of coffee. But but how about the relationship you had and and what you all did together to mm -hmm. make hit music? That should be the focus, okay? Uh, not this, well, I own a name now, Larry. So what? Okay, uh, that doesn't seem to be doing a lot for you. Um, right. and, and what made it work was the apparatus chemistry the setup that you had before you should be running to preserve that and working along that context because that's what worked for you mm -hmm. oh yeah i want to ask about uh before we go uh arsenio hall doing Shut chunky A. <laughs> yeah that was fun that was real that was fun that was the first video i shot that uh that had you know, to use sound, actually real sound and, mm. and dialogue. And, right. and I, you know, I was in Japan and he called and asked if I would do his uh, Chunky A. And it was, it was strange. The guy that shot Michael Jackson's Thriller. Um, John Landis. He, uh, was it John Landis? Well, he directed it. Um, yes. But he had an AD too. Um, anyway, a lot of the crew came from that uh, body of work. Okay. They were not necessarily the most cooperative guys in the world. You know, um, <laughs> there were things being done that, you know, like somebody would have a real thick cord coming across a walkway and you trip over it. And then you look back and it's not there anymore. Then mm -hmm. that's for you to know that oh, that was wow. done for you. Uh, so <laughs> I avoided little stuff <laughs> like that, but it was a, a great shoot, and I enjoyed every moment of it. The whole chunky eight thing was uh, was uh, Arsenio's thing. I loved Arsenio because he was just a funny guy, man. Um, that's the, and he was a sincere guy, you know. He used to invite us on the set. He'd have a nice drum set in his office. And he had uh, this guy Chucky in his band, wasn't it? Yeah, was it Chucky. Yeah, yeah. Chuck, give me that cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, Chuck played with us also. Man, we—I don't know how many drummers we've been through. Jesus Christ! I, I want to know what the firing process was like. <laughs> uh, that, that wasn't too hard, you know. Um, well, you don't mince words, I guess. No, I mean. You know, you're trying to get something done, and and it's and it's fairly simple. It, it's it the frustrating part for me is when a guy can't hear that he's losing the pocket, or or he can't hear it himself. That is frustrating for me. But I have done everything I think I've done everything I could do to help. But if they don't have it, they don't have it. Some guys just don't have it, and rocks rolling down a hill won't make people dance at all. Wow. And as you said, the simplicity of some of the hip hop fills, with if that's all you're doing, then that works. That wouldn't make people want to dance because they're familiar with that already, and uh, and it's in time. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's not in time, is it music? 
I don't know. Not too uh, might not be. Man. I don't know. You might have to James Brown and find him. But yeah, and I don't know how James did that, but they sure had it going on. God knows. Absolutely. I, I think I, I think I have a, a I think I have an answer for finding the perfect drummer. Okay. And this is what and this is what Peter Gabriel used to do. He used to have a drummer, or for his studio drummers at least, he would have a drummer come in, sit behind the drum kit, and just tell him to play a song for like five minutes. And then one by one, he would take a piece away. And to the point where he even took the hi-hats away. Like Peter Gabriel hated the sound of hi-hats. And it forced, when you're stuck with just the bare minimums, then you're forced to just concentrate on the pocket because you have nothing else to deal with. Which Mm. I know, you know, the nights that I saw you guys and I saw you guys during the John Blackwell era, I I almost feel like, because cats always ask, like, yo, man, how can I get cats to stay in the pocket? My first answer is, you got to take all their drums away. Just snare, hi-hat, kick. Start there, the basic minimum. And that's, I feel like that's the answer. You, you, <laughs> cats got to get back to heard that. And, uh, you got to. It forces them to stay in the pocket. You got to take the toys away. <laughs> if they uh, do good, reward them with a hi-hat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? With a hi-hat, yeah. How about that? But, Man, well, how did you develop your 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 pocket? When 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 did that happen? When did you notice that you had a pocket? You had to have that pocket to play. The thing the thing is is that you know, growing up, right? You know, hip hop and I were of of sort of the synergy together. Where not only am I studying. Uh, drum breaks that hip hoppers is sampling, but like I grew up with those records and my father's record collection, you know, he had like three, 4,000 records in his collection. So I would notice that when cats wanted to, to freestyle at my high school, if I would recreate those same breaks that they heard in rap songs, that's when they would start to dance. And, you know, and to me, it wasn't about drum feels. It's finding the perfect, four bars right and pe- people don't trust the process of of less is more yes and you yes. know I've, i felt like my thing was the less you do the better it is yeah and you know <laughs> but it also it also comes with time and that's the thing like a lot of times especially with black bands when i was asking you earlier about where did you practice mm-hmm. oftentimes like Church is the only environment that they get to play. And sometimes mm-hmm. you got to do everything but the kitchen sink to keep your position because there's 14 drummers in church waiting to replace you. Yeah, how about and that? And more than that, I just, I, I grew up with a band leader father that would look back at you and find you $50 if you messed up. So, <laughs> nah, I, I kept the pocket. <laughs> Brother Blackman, thank you so much. Nah, thank you, man. I appreciate this. Um, okay. Yeah, on behalf of Laia, please get well and Sugar Steve. That was a that was a great interview. Thank you, Mr. Blackman, for your time and and all that information. That was amazing. And thank you for mentioning all the engineers also that you worked with over time. Gloria, yo, thank you very much. Uh, on on behalf of of Fontigolo and Laia and Unpaid Bill and Sugar Steve, 
and myself, Questlove, and the great, immortal Larry Blackman, and all the members of Cameo and their 42,000 drummers. This is uh, Questlove <laughs> Supreme. All right, we'll see you on the next round. Thank you. All right, bye-bye now. Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.